Welcome to another edition of Heartland History. I'm your host, John Lauk. Today we are joined by Jim Connolly, a professor of history at Ball State University in Indiana. Jim is, in fact, the George and Francis Ball Professor of History in the History Department at Ball State. Jim is also the director of the Center for Middletown Studies, named after the famous study of Muncie, Indiana, by the sociologists Robert and Helen Lind. Welcome to the show, Jim. Thank you. Jim, why don't you begin by telling us a bit about George Ball, who I assume is the namesake of your university and also the namesake of your particular professorship. Well, uh, George, the, George is one of five brothers, uh, and the university is, in fact, named after all five of the brothers. Uh, the Ball brothers came to Indiana in the middle of the 1880s from Buffalo, New York, to set up a glass factory. They'd been operating one in Buffalo that had burnt down and they decided to look for greener pastures. Uh, and so uh, George's brother, Frank, actually spent some time touring in the Midwest and by uh, good luck, he uh, at a very late moment added Muncie to his itinerary and he found the place to be quite congenial both from a business perspective as well as a social perspective. And so the five brothers, including George, uh, decided to relocate to Muncie, Indiana uh, and they became really the most prominent businessmen in the city. Uh, George Ball was, in fact, a, a prominent national businessman uh, who, by the 20s and 30s, was, uh, at one point at least, arguably the richest man in the United States, at least for a short period of time, uh, in terms of net worth. Uh, and so they were very generous benefactors to a number of institutions in, in and around Muncie, including the university there, which eventually became Ball State Teachers College and then Ball State University. Tell us a little bit about the Lins, who perhaps more than the Ball family put Muncie on the historical map. Uh, you're right. The, the Lins probably did more for uh, getting Muncie's name out and establishing its reputation than even the Balls uh, did. Uh, Robert and Helen Lind were uh, a husband and wife team who were hired by an organization called the Institute for Social and Religious Research in, I think, about 1923. Uh, and were tasked with conducting a small city study. Uh, and they took over for a, a sociologist who had been uh, let go from the project. Um, and so they picked up where he left off. He had identified a collection of Midwestern cities that might be worthy of careful study. Um, the, the idea of the study was to investigate the role of churches in responding to the social problems created by industrialization. Uh, and so the Lynns inherited a list of cities, including Muncie, including South Bend, Indiana, including a few others. Uh, and for a number of interesting reasons, they narrowed down uh, their choice to, to Muncie, Indiana. Um, and they picked Muncie partly because of its size. Uh, it had about 35,000 people. And it was all it, that made it manageable for the kind of detailed research that the Lynns wanted to do. Uh, and they also picked Muncie because it wasn't particularly diverse at the time. It had a relatively small population of immigrants. It did, in fact, have a, a growing population of African-Americans, but the Lynns kind of ignored the African-American presence in the city and focused on the white Protestant portion of the community, which was 90 plus percent of the community. Uh, and they uh, paid a lot of attention to class relations. Uh, in the end, they produced a, a study after spending about 18 months living in Muncie, they produced a study that went well beyond the initial charge of the Institute, which asked them to look at 
religious institutions, and they produced what they called a total situation study. It was a detailed look at what life was like, what the cultural patterns, the social developments were like uh, in a small industrial city. Tell us a little bit about the Institute for Social Research, which sponsored the Lynn's original study of Muncie. What, what was the motivation of this institute, and what was its primary purpose? Well, that's a, that's a very interesting story. The Institute for Social and Religious Research was, in fact, an offshoot of the Rockefeller Foundation, and it was largely funded by John D. Rockefeller Jr., uh, and the Rockefellers, both father and son, who were two of the richest people in the country at, at that time, were quite concerned about uh, the growth of class conflict in the United States. Um, the Lynn, uh, excuse me, not the Lynn's, the Rockefellers uh, owned mining interests that had um, been uh, troubled by a number of strikes, sometimes uh, some very violent. One most famous uh, incident took place at Cripple, in Cripple Creek, Colorado, uh, where a number of women and children were killed in a clash between miners and um, essentially armed forces hired by the, the mine operators. Uh, and this gave the Rockefellers a black eye in terms of publicity. And so they were very anxious to look for ways to reduce class conflict in the United States. They're also deeply religious. And so they had a strong belief that religious institutions would be a tool for addressing these kinds of issues. Uh, and so they, as part of the work of the Rockefeller Foundation, which they obviously funded, um, they set up this Institute for Social and Religious Research which primarily was designed to figure out ways in which religious institutions could address problems of inequality, class conflict, social tensions, and so forth, urban problems as well. Um, and so the small city study was one of the projects that the Institute commissioned. Jim, can you tell us about how the study of Muncie, Indiana, by the lens, has held up over time? I know it's been scrutinized many times, but how do scholars currently look at that study? Scholars today uh, emphasize, which is that it is not a, Muncie was not a demographically representative community. Uh, it was a place that had a very small population of immigrants at a time when almost every other industrial city in the country had substantial ethnic populations, substantial immigrant communities. Um, as I said before, it had a fairly robust and developing African-American community. It was growing at a faster rate than even, say, Chicago at, in the early 1920s. Uh, but for purposes of their study, the Lynns chose not to look at race relations or at the experience of African-Americans, uh, and so they kind of got written out. And so scholars uh, have, in more recent years, um, sharply criticized the Lynns and insist that uh, the Middletown study is not representative of a typical or a representative American community. And absolutely, from a demographic sense, uh, that, that is certainly the case. Now, you will still find a few social scientists around who would insist that despite the demographic problems of studying Muncie as a, as a representative community, there are reasons to think that the patterns you see in Muncie track pretty well with some of the patterns you see uh, in, the, in the United States as a whole. Uh, and to understand that, one of the things you have to note is that the Lynns not only produced an original study in the 1920s, they produced a follow-up book in the 1930s called Middletown in Transition, and that inaugurated a tradition of coming back to Muncie and studying it as a, uh, if not a typical American community, at least one that um, had some connection to larger patterns in American life. And so it became a test market for soap and toothpaste in the 1950s. 
Uh, and then other sociologists came back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s and did other kinds of research, as did historians, political scientists, and other uh, scholars. The, the point that some of the scholars who've come back to Muncie would make is that even if demographically it's not representative, uh, there are patterns in the community, divorce rates, crime rates, number of books checked out of the library, things like that, that track very closely with other, uh, with, or with American society as a whole. Uh, in fact, um, Ted Kaplow, who did a lot of the more recent research in the late 20th century, uh, once once uh, told me that and wrote that um, that uh, o the only city in the country that tracks more closely to national norms that, that he could find was uh, Upper Sandusky, Ohio. Um, so yeah, there's another Midwestern city that you'll have to do a podcast about. Um, so there's this ongoing debate about what is the value of studying this community, and certainly it's not representative. It's not a window into important questions about race and ethnicity that have shaped American history uh, through the 20th and now the 21st century. Uh, but on the other hand, you have this very rich body of material, beginning with the Lynn's very detailed observations of the community in the 1920s, um, that gives you a wonderful baseline for making comparisons between past and present. What is the level of consciousness among people in the city of Indiana of how much they have been studied by sociologists and historians over the years? It ebbs and flows depending on what's been produced lately. Uh, just this past week, for instance, um, there's an article put out uh, by the Reuters News Service about uh, white male Trump voters, essentially, uh, uh, all of whom were connected to organized labor uh, in the past. Uh, and it plays off the idea that uh, this is Middletown, that, that studying Muncie gives you a window onto something a little more than just any other community would. Um, and so that's kind of the hook they use uh, to sell their article. Now, this got comment from a couple of folks in the newspaper. There's been a, a, a column and, and, and another article written about the article um, in which people, you know, as they have in the past, take issue with certain points being made uh, when Muncie is used in this way. Uh, and so at certain times in its history, Muncie has complained vociferously about uh, the way it's been portrayed. Uh, they weren't very happy in the 1930s when Life magazine did a, uh, a photo essay uh, done by Margaret Bork White, the famous uh, 1930s photographer, uh, that didn't necessarily depict the community in a very flattering way. Uh, or in the 1970s and 80s, when there were a series of studies, and including a series of documentary films produced for public television, um, not all of which the community found to be congenial. Uh, and there was a great ruckus then. So at those times, people are pretty aware of it and, and not, not always so happy about it. But at other times, you're, you see people who really like the idea that Muncie somehow might be the quintessential American place. Uh, and they'll play off of that. Um, you know, a few years ago, when American Idol was, was so very popular, on TV, there was a local talent show called Middletown Idol, right? So, but altogether, I think most people go around the day not really thinking much about the fact that Muncie is the subject of these academic studies. Jim, you mentioned the role of religion as a motivation for the early studies of Muncie. And of course, the Rockefellers funded the University of Chicago and other uh, religious charities in the Midwest. But in terms of religion, uh, weren't the Lynn's Quakers, and did that play a role in their work? My understanding, I don't know the details of it, is that they were, uh, and certainly Robert Lind was less uh, uh, devoted to a particular denomination or religion. It's, it's an interesting story about how 
first of all, he came to the attention of the Rockefellers and the Institute and then how the, the, the two of them were tasked with the uh, completion of the small city study. Uh, Robert Lind, who's from southern Indiana, Princeton, Indiana, um, had just finished his uh, a seminary degree at Princeton. Um, and so he was preparing for the ministry and had a crisis of faith uh, where he wasn't so sure that the ministry was the best way to, to pursue the ideals um, that um, he wanted to pursue. Uh, and one of the things he had done during a summer while he was a divinity student was preach and uh, serve as a minister to a mining camp out in Wyoming uh, that happened to be owned by the Rockefellers. Uh, and he was appalled by the conditions there. And he wrote an article for, I think it was the survey magazine called Done in Oil that really painted a, a negative picture of life in the camps and hung a lot of the blame on the Rockefellers themselves. Um, this is what brought him to their attention. Uh, and part of their motive, I think, in hiring him or encouraging the Institute to hire, hire him was to show that they were neutral in this undertaking. They weren't trying to stack the deck in the favor of their own particular views. Um, and so uh, Lind insisted on having a free hand when, when he did this. And that free hand is what led both Robert and Helen Lind to create this much broader, much more detailed, carefully developed account of so many aspects of the community's life, not just the churches. And as it happens, when the Lynns finally delivered the manuscript, they, they spent, as I said, 18 months in Muncie, lived here, participated in various aspects of community life, conducted a variety of surveys, uh, uh, you know, did some historical research to make some comparisons to the pre-industrial period. And they produced this very large book, you know, more than 500 pages in print. And they gave it to the Institute, and the Institute was bewildered. They're, they were stunned by what they got and said, this isn't what we asked for. And they said, we don't want it. Um, and so the Lynns first thought they had kind of a white elephant on their hands, but they, they hired an agent, and, and he marketed the book, and it came out. And then to everyone's surprise, it was a bestseller. Um, but the religious motivations got lost both because of the way the, the project unfolded and also because I think the Lynns were themselves moving away from um, a, a sort of religious or faith perspective at that time. And they would move even further away later in their careers. I recently read an article about the role of Quakers in Indiana uh, and in particular the role of Quakers in the Underground Railroad and helping escape slaves uh, get out of the South and to safety in the North, and also the role of Quaker towns uh, in Indiana in terms of civil rights. And I assume that Robert Lind would have been a part of that tradition, no? We talked a moment ago about the ways in which contemporary scholars criticize much of the Middletown work for the absence of African Americans, for the absence of ethnic minorities. Um, and in the case of the Lynds in the 1920s, actually choosing to ignore the African-American community. Um, and so they've come in for a lot of criticism, uh, you know, in many ways, deservedly so. Uh, but a few years back, we had Staunton Lind uh, give a talk at a conference we held. Staunton Lind is their son, and he was a very well-known left-wing historian um, who basically was drummed out of the academy for, for his politics uh, and be then became a, a labor lawyer. Uh, and, um, and, and a strong activist. And he argued that uh, the Lynns were sympathetic to concerns about racial inequality and civil rights um, and, and believed that there was some kernel of um, reform and, and progress in the attitudes and the activities of the sort of stolid middle-class Protestants of Indiana and places like it. Uh, and so 
part of what they were trying to do, Stott and Lind argued, was to sort of highlight that and hopefully, you know, maybe produce progress in that direction through, by emphasizing uh, the way that these kinds of people could adjust their values to respond to the, the new challenges of the 20th century. I'd like to move on to some of the other projects that your center is engaged in, but one last footnote about Stoughton Lind. I think he became a labor lawyer in Youngstown, Ohio. Do you know, is he still active in that arena or what his current projects are? Uh, he, I don't know how active he is. Um, he is still alive. He and his wife, in fact, uh, this is a funny little uh, story. Um, he and his wife, in fact, got very involved during the early 2000s and, and up till very recently, I think, as well. I don't, I don't know what their latest uh, work has been uh, in the anti-death penalty movement. Uh, and so the talk that Stott and Lind was supposed to give to the conference that we held, this was in 2004 to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the first Middletown book. Um, he was scheduled to give a keynote address. Uh, and at the very last minute, he called me and he said, I can't make it because my wife has just been arrested for protesting at a maximum security prison in Ohio. Uh, and he had to go down to bail her out. Um, and so his, his, his address was read in absentia, uh, and uh, he was very gracious to let us uh, use it in a publication later on. Uh, but it, was, it, was, it gave you a little window on the continuing activism that, that he was involved in first in terms of labor uh, law and then in terms of uh, the death penalty. Uh, and he very much considered, I believe, he very much considered that these kind of activities were, were consistent with uh, the ethical concerns of his parents and the agenda that his parents had laid out for themselves. Jim, your center, the Center for Middletown Studies, has been involved in recent years in a very interesting study, and that is studying the people of Muncie, Indiana in the late 19th century and what they were reading, what books they were checking out from the library. Can you explain more about this project? Sure. Uh, this project arose uh, in the early 2000s, actually 2003 and 2004. Uh, my colleague, Frank Felsenstein, uh, was preparing for a course on the history of the book. Uh, he's, a, he's in the English department. And he went down to the public library in town. This is a, this is a, um, a Carnegie library built in 1904 that was undergoing some remodeling. And in the course of the remodeling, they had pulled books out of attics and storage closets and so forth and, and various boxes of, of stuff. And they were all out by, by happenstance when he showed up. And so they pointed him over into the corner and the shelves where the boxes were. And he started digging through. And what he found were not only uh, ledgers that, that cataloged all of the books that the library had acquired going back to its founding in 1875, but also cataloged all of the patrons uh, that had joined the library between 1875 and 1904. And even better, he found another box was filled with these small, narrow, dusty ledgers uh, that had pencil notations with two columns of numbers running down each side and a name in between. And it turned out those were the circulation books for the library that indicated every book that every person checked out. And they ran from 1891 to 1902. With a, there's a gap in 93, 94 because of a smallpox epidemic and the library shut. Uh, and I think they destroyed some ledgers. Um, but basically what we're able to do these two columns of numbers, one was a number indicating a book and one was a number indicating a patron. And so we were able to marry those. And there were about 175,000 of these loans. Uh, and what this enabled us to do is essentially say, who borrowed what books? 
Um, and we were able to investigate many, not all, but many of the borrowers through census records, city directories, and so forth. And we were able to create a database that allows researchers to, for instance, see what uh, women from blue-collar families were borrowing or what um, young boys were borrowing uh, at any one time. Or if you want to see who borrowed Mark Twain or you want to look at a particular genre and see you know, who was borrowing historical fiction, um, you can do any of these kinds of in searches. And it allows you to give a pretty, get a pretty good handle about the, the reading tastes that people had in, in Muncie in this period, or at least the library users, which was a considerable uh, slice of the community at this time, particularly uh, uh, people on the, on the middle class side, although there were plenty of blue collar readers as well, uh, and start to detect patterns of borrowing. And, and we would argue that in most cases, a borrowed book was a red book. Uh, there isn't the same kind of competition uh, for our media attention um, as there is today. So you, you didn't have the internet, you didn't have television, radio, all those things. So really reading was the primary mode of communication um, in, in many ways. Uh, and so, and we've investigated this and looked at length of, of, of time before they returned the book and things like that. Um, and so we were confident that for the most part, this, this is, these borrowing patterns represent reading choices. Uh, as well. And so this enabled us to write a book which just came out this past year, uh, which we call What Middletown Read. Uh, and the name of the database is also What Middletown Read, uh, in which we try to contextualize the borrowing patterns that we see in this set of data. Thank you again for joining us today on Heartland History. Today we are talking with Jim Connolly, a professor of history at Ball State University and the director of the Center for Middletown Studies. And we have been visiting about a project that Jim is engaged in, which studies what kind of books the people in Muncie were reading in the late 19th century. Jim, to continue this discussion, uh, are the people in Muncie, Indiana, in the late 19th century, reading authors such as Lou Wallace or James Whitcomb Riley? Or what can you tell us specifically about what they were reading? They were reading both of those, and those are, of course, two Hoosier authors. And so they were, they were fairly popular. If you're just ranking the top choices, um, you don't have to go too far down to find Lou Wallace or, or, or James Whitcomb Riley. They're not at the very top. Uh, of the list of most often borrowed books. Uh, the, the books that are borrowed most frequently tend to be first and foremost uh, children's fiction, which is a product in, to some degree of um, how short those books were and how many uh, times children borrow them. So for instance, the, the most popular author in the whole collection is Horatio Alger, uh, which may have been to the consternation of some librarians. Uh, but the demand was very high. Uh, the books were short, easy to read. And so you see episodes of binge read, reading where a kid will come in on Monday and borrow Horatio Alger and be back on Wednesday for another one and Saturday for another one and, and, and they'll string them along. Uh, and so the largest uh, set of books to be borrowed is children's literature. Uh, the next largest is probably popular uh, domestic or um, romantic fiction, uh, a lot of which was borrowed by uh, adult women. Uh, and so those two constituencies dominate the borrowing in the library to a, to a pretty considerable degree. Uh, although there's a lot of other things going on. And so you have collections of readers that are borrowing, um, you know, realist fiction or are doing homework for school. You can see other, other patterns as well uh, in this data. 
I really like the idea of Horatio Alger serving as the Harry Potter of the 1890s. Uh, that's a very fun story. But uh, Jim, can you tell us uh, if the people in Muncie, uh, in terms of the books they were reading, were they reading regionalist literature? And in particular here, I'm thinking about Midwestern regionalist literature or the authors that are prominent in the Midwest? People reading uh, what is sometimes called regional or, or um, local color fiction uh, from this period. Uh, it's not exclusively Midwestern. Um, you have people reading books about other, other regions and other settings, not just the Midwest. There is some indication of, a, of an attraction to uh, Midwestern authors. Um, and some of that is a, perhaps a product of the choices of the librarians to, to obtain those books and make them available. Uh, and so, you know, perhaps the best example of this is um, Booth Tarkington's novel, The Gentleman from Indiana, uh, which is a, uh, it's published in 1898, and it is a incredibly popular. It, you know, our data goes up to 1902, and so that in just that short period, I think the first book is acquired in 1899, um, and by 1902, the library has purchased four copies of the book because it's so popular. Uh, and it's, in fact, a description of an Indiana town uh, that's a county seat some distance from the state capital, uh, and it's it's growing, it's recently industrialized, which is almost a portrait of Muncie. And so you do see evidence of people looking in the mirror, in a sense, reading a, a story about a town that very much resembles Muncie at that time. Um, and so th there's some evidence of a taste for understanding their own experiences, and this, particularly this experience of becoming an industrial community. When you see other forms of reading that are about... You, are about engaging with life in an, in an industrial town. Um, there's a women's club that uses, it, it gets involved in a lot of civic reform activity, but that also spends a lot of time reading fiction about urban and industrial problems. Um, and so you see connections between the lived experience of the community and some of the reading choices in that way. Jim, is there a good way to extrapolate this kind of study to other towns in the Midwest? And have you seen any evidence of graduate students or professors or anyone else for that matter attempting to replicate this kind of study? It's something we've tried to encourage and it's something that we hope is our, that our project will be a model for other places. But the key to it is finding the circulation records. There's lots of places where we have uh, library catalogs, even lists of patrons. Um, there's libraries that kept general statistics about borrowing how much fiction, how much history and science and so forth. But there, the circulation records are few and far between, uh, in part perhaps because they were considered confidential and so they weren't kept around. Librarians had a habit of destroying these. Um, so we've, we've only had sort of limited success. Uh, one of our colleagues, Wayne Wiegand, produced something called the Main Street Public Library Database, which we've also made available through... Um, our university libraries and is, is connected now to the What Middletown Red site. Uh, and what he has is a, a, a database of library catalogs in six or seven Midwestern towns, uh, Osage, Iowa, uh, which was the subject of another terrific book along these lines by Christine Pauley, uh, Reading on the Middle Border is the name of it. Uh, but also um, several other small towns, Minnesota and Illinois and so forth. Uh, and what you see there, this is a, a it's a wider chronological spread from the 1890s to, I believe, around 1940 or 1940s. Uh, and what you see there are similar patterns that are consistent with what we see in Muncie 
in terms of the acquisitions of libraries, but we don't have access to the circulation data for those communities. We really hope that um, we can encourage people. We've had a few queries about how to, how to do this, and we've we've tried to encourage people to take on similar projects. But the the trick is to find the circulation evidence uh, and, and where that exists. Yeah. You mentioned Wayne Wygand, and I thoroughly enjoyed his book about libraries in the Midwest, published by the University of Iowa Press. And in particular, I remember his chapter about Sauk Center, Minnesota, because I happened to be driving through Sauk Center about the time I was reading that book. And of course, Sauk Center is the home of Sinclair Lewis, who won the Nobel Prize for literature uh, back in the back in the day. Uh, Wygan's book, for our listeners who may be interested, is entitled uh, Main Street Public Library. But speaking of uh, literature and industrialization in Indiana, I also was recently reading Booth Tarkington's book, The Magnificent Ambersons, which is, of course, about the pains of industrialization for towns in the Midwest. And this leads me to ask about one of the other projects that you have going at your center, and that is the attempt to understand or study the long-term impl implications of industrialization, or more precisely, de-industrialization. Uh, can you discuss those projects? Uh, one of them takes advantage of this very rich documentary record we have for Muncie, Indiana, uh, and so we call it documenting deindustrialization. And, and essentially, what we're trying to do here is create a bookend for the original research on Middletown by the Linns. The Linns came to Muncie, and they chose Muncie uh, not only because it was small and, and fairly homogenous, but also because it was recently industrialized. The city had experienced rapid growth and development in the 1890s, the, the setting of, of the What Middletown Red Project's uh, work, uh, because of the discovery of, of natural gas. And so the Linns picked Muncie because it was a convenient way to measure the impact of industrialization. They could look at the city in the 19th century and compare it to the 1920s and say these are the things that have changed and have not changed uh, because of industrialization. Uh, and so one of the things we're trying to do is to do the reverse. We're looking at the impact of deindustrialization on this very richly studied community, and we think it puts us in a nice position to make comparisons over time uh, about the impact of deindustrialization because we have such a rich record of what came before and the social and cultural uh, developments associated with industrialization. So to do this, we've done a number of different things, and, and this is ongoing. We've done a, a series of oral history uh, projects that uh, involved interviewing uh, people in organized labor, business leaders, uh, educational leaders. Uh, we are just beginning a project where we're discussing uh, or we're working with uh, uh, local churches and ministers to look at the changing civic role of churches, which we think is a, is a pretty significant one. Um, and we've also we did a documentary film about the closing of a, of a factory. We've done some photo essays, uh, and we've done a little bit of uh, gathering of some statistical material to kind of measure some aspects of social change. And we want to continue to do this in the hopes that we're going to be in a position fairly soon to uh, make a, a kind of a comprehensive account of the impact of deindustrialization that can be used and, and compared to the Lynn's examination of industrialization. Uh, with this, we're you know well aware that there are sort of limits to studying Muncie. I don't think we're going to insist that this is a typical experience, but certainly the process of of losing industries, losing more importantly, losing manufacturing jobs, 
uh, is is a significant one for a lot of communities in the Midwest, a lot of communities in what we, we now call the Rust Belt. We're also interested in looking at the ways in which small cities of, uh, of various sorts have coped with this so that we can have a basis of comparison. So we're kind of taking advantage of the fact that the original Middletown study was conceived as a small city study to undertake projects that look at small cities more generally, both in the Midwest specifically, uh, as well as nationally and even internationally. We've done a number of conferences where we've brought scholars together working on small cities in different places and at different times uh, to begin to sort of systematically consider uh, how the experiences of small cities uh, follow patterns described for big cities uh, and how they might diverge from those patterns. Uh, and certainly one of those developments, important developments, is deindustrialization. So we know a lot, for instance, about deindustrialization in a bigger city like Detroit. Uh, we know less, perhaps, uh, about smaller cities such as um, Muncie or Youngstown or Akron, places like that. So. Thank you, Jim, for joining us today on Heartland History. We have been talking today with Jim Connolly of Ball State University, who is a historian at the university and also the director of the Center for Middletown Studies. I'm your host, John Lauk. Thank you for joining us today for another edition of Heartland History. Thank yous go out again today to our producer, Dana Brown, and our sponsor, the Midwestern History Association. If you have not checked out the Midwestern History Association online, please uh, Google Midwestern History Association and take a look at its website. And please follow the Midwestern History Association on Twitter and Facebook. I'm your host, John Lauk. Please join us again next week. <laughs>